The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Donna Marie Lizenby. She is president of River Fox Environmental based in Boone, North Carolina, but she works globally on clean energy issues. She has a lifelong commitment to build sustainable relationships between people and the earth, and she plays a key role in investigating the coal industry and working with coalitions to end their illegal pollution. Ms. Lizenby earned a Bachelor of Science degree from Clemson University in 1987. Since then, she has managed a 300-acre farm, moving it from traditional to organic agricultural practices. She has saved a local school from becoming an industrial site, and she has turned it into a community center. In 1998, Ms. Lizenby was chosen to serve as the Catawba Riverkeeper, and for the next 20 years, she worked her way up from being a local riverkeeper to becoming a global advocacy manager for the Waterkeeper Alliance. She has appeared in the film Walmart, The High Cost of Low Price, where she exposed the retailer's appalling failure to protect our environment. She also contributed to the National Geographic mini-documentary titled Clean Coal, Water Pollution at the Light Switch, which recounted her research and response to the largest industrial spill in U.S. history, and that would be the Kingston, Tennessee coal ash spill. Welcome, Ms. Lizenby. It is such an honor to have you. Thank you. Please just call me Donna. All right. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really curious how you became interested in coal ash and how your work has evolved to be a global leader in preventing the contamination of our water system. About 10 years ago, I began investigating the more than 30 coal ash ponds in my home state of North Carolina, and I found out that every one of them were leaking and contaminating both surface water and groundwater, and our state agency had done nothing about it. Mm. And water is a public resource in the United States. It belongs to all of us. And no entity has the right to pollute or poison the public's water. And when the state agency was basically doing nothing about it, I decided to publish the facts and information, and I teamed up with other partners, conducted on-site investigations, and worked with riverkeepers across the United States and then advocates globally to clean up leaking coal ash ponds. Donna, I could not agree with you more about how we feel about water and how it is our shared resource. And I remember the day in my nutrition class when I learned that water was our most important nutrient. And when I think about all of the ways in which contaminants in water can harm not only our health today, but future generations with, say, birth defects or cancers, I think this is such a crime, and it's a crime against humanity, really. So people like you who are working to protect our watersheds, you're really the heroes of the environment, and I want to thank you. 
in preparation for this interview, I went online and I was doing some research on coal ash. You know, why is it so hazardous to human health? And I started reading about all the heavy metals that appear in coal ash. So arsenic, lead, mercury, cadmium, chromium, selenium, aluminum, and so on. And I realized that these are contaminants that can cause cancer, nervous system impacts such as cognitive defects, behavioral problems, heart damage, lung and respiratory distress. We absolutely have to protect ourselves against exposure. And yet the Earth Justice website reports that according to industry's own data, more than 95% of coal ash ponds in the United States are unlined. It's a historical artifact. A lot of our coal fleet, coal-fired power plants are older. Some of them were built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Some of them predated the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And so when our environmental laws had to sort of catch up and try and control some of these from these industrial facilities after they were already built and operating. In the case of coal ash, it was a waste product. After they burned the coal, there were just tons of coal left, and they didn't really know what to do with it. And so they just usually what they did is they dammed a small stream somewhere, made a dam, and they threw all the coal ash in that pond and didn't even think about a liner in the 70s and 80s when a lot of our coal plants were built. And so it's just one of those legacy industrial sites where we we later learned how unfortunate, how deadly, and how dangerous that practice was of storing coal ash in unlined waste pits, most often next to rivers and streams because coal plants need millions of gallons of water to operate. So almost every coal plant in the United States is adjacent to some large body of water. Mm. It makes it so clear to me that we have got to move away from coal and exactly. other fossil fuels as we move forward, especially in the days of more and stronger storms. And when I first learned about your work, it was through Rick Dove, who was also working with the, he was working with the News River Waterkeepers Alliance. And he told me about what happens after hurricanes with regard to hog waste in North Carolina getting into rivers and streams. And then he mentioned your name. And just as we are seeing all of this animal manure pollution, we are also seeing coal ash pollution. So having unlined pits, in light of climate change and all of these climate incidents, to me, that raises a red flag in terms of urgency that we've got to do something. Do you see communities moving in the direction of somehow cleaning up or containing these contaminants? We do where we see active and engaged citizen groups who are fighting for the health and often for their children's health. In case after case, I've investigated more than 40 coal ash ponds in more than 14 states and now in eight, seven or eight countries. And in all the communities surrounding these coal plants, we find sick people or cancer clusters. Not official cancer clusters that an agency of some kind deems that. They rarely do. And so when those communities organize and they are fighting for their children's health, they often report children with nosebleeds. Families have children born with birth defects near these sites. There are cancers, really early cancers in young people. 
then we see a cleanup happening. And when we see citizen groups also engage with lawyers to hold these historic polluters accountable and make them stop poisoning our air and water, then we see cleanups. So it all depends on an active, engaged community who's basically fighting for their future. Mm. And it seems that there are so many regions of the country where people are struggling economically. Maybe they look at a coal plant as a source of jobs and employment, and you start seeing fighting between people who are doing the pollution or depend on these jobs because maybe there isn't something else. And then you've got the sick children as a side effect. I'm sure in your work, you have faced these kinds of contingencies. Can you speak to those problems? It's a tough thing when a paycheck is dependent on pollution. And the pathway out is for alternative employment where a family, a head of household, isn't dependent on a polluting entity for its paycheck. And so if we could just shift the billions in subsidies and other investments made in coal operations, just shift that same money. Don't take it for anywhere. Don't raise taxes anywhere. Just shift the billions in subsidies for coal and oil, fossil fuels, and shift all those subsidies from fossil fuel energy towards renewable and put people to work Mm -hmm. in renewable energy jobs, they would be healthier, they would be happier, they would be proud of the work they do and not face this ethical dilemma. Do I keep earning a paycheck to feed my family working for a polluting industry, or do I quit, take a risk, move my family and try and find a job somewhere else where I'm not hurting other people's children and my own children. It's a heck of a predicament that people are in when they're faced with that choice. And so our government could help out a lot by simply ending subsidies and government incentive programs and all kinds of things government does to help monetize and help. For example, when they build pipelines in this country, Now pipeline companies use the power of eminent domain to take private property for private gain, to build a pipeline. And just stopping that, just don't give the pipeline companies the power of the government to seize private property. Just stopping that special perk, that subsidy, basically, that government power would be a huge help. Anyway, that's one solution, is just to shift those dollars into clean energy and give people green jobs. It's a wonderful alternative. And it's really important that we bring these alternatives up so that people aren't placed in these horrible predicaments. Well, in your work, I know a lot of times when people write reports or raise issues of concern, there's backlash. Oftentimes, the industry that is profiting from the pollution is at the source of the backlash. Have you faced that yourself? Yes, but I just don't let it bother me. I mean, the way they typically would ask me is through depositions and discovery, and they would chase us when we were on boats with security guards and try and make us stop sampling water. I remember when I worked with TVA, Kingston Coal Ash Spill, and we went in five days after that massive spill, and we were sampling what were Ashberg's giant 
ash piles in the Emory River. The security bear was chasing us in a helicopter. They were chasing us in an SUV on land, and they were chasing us in a boat, but it was a powerboat, and we were in kayaks and a canoe, and they had so choked the river with coal ash, they simply could not get to us. And so they're blowing the whistle and motioning for us to come over, and we just continued to collect our samples, and when we were all done, our work, then we paddled over to see what the security person wanted. They asked for our ID. They gave us a ticket for criminal trespass on a public river. Wow. <laughs> and um, we left and got the samples analyzed and then did a report. And so we just continue the work. It's necessary and important to continue the work. And Absolutely. Now, I know you've worked with the Waterkeepers Alliance. Do you also work with Earth Justice at all? Like, what are the larger organizations that are receptive to receive your water analyses and your concerns. You know, I think sometimes when we're just individuals, we tend to feel depressed and powerless, but it's only when we join a larger group of people who are working together where we can see change. Are there groups that you'd recommend that we join forces with? Absolutely. Earth Justice was a tremendous partner of ours. I worked very closely with them and continue to do so on the international front on some issues in Bangladesh right now. And so Earth Justice is a great organization to partner with. They're at the forefront of coal ash. Also, Environmental Integrity Project, another great organization that we partnered with to, they have a website called Ash Tracker, which will show your listeners if they have a coal ash pond in, in their community, it's a map of the United States, and it will show, if there is one, what the contaminants are. Southern Environmental Law Center, if you're in the southern states, they were a key partner and represented us legally and helped secure many agreements that required and compelled full cleanup and excavation of the ash ponds so they would no longer contaminate groundwater and surface water. So there's a bunch of organizations out there that have worked the issue, that work to defend environmental health and human health, and they're all just wonderful to work with. Well, I'll make sure and provide links to those organizations so that our listeners can have easy access to those. We are more than halfway through, so let me just take a quick break and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Donna Marie Lisenby. She is president of River Fox Environmental, based in Boone, North Carolina, but she works globally on clean energy issues, investigating the coal industry and working with coalitions to end their illegal pollution of our precious air and water. Well, I want to get back, Donna, if I might, to the Kingston, Tennessee coal ash spill. I clicked on a short video, which I'll also provide a link to, titled Clean Coal, Water Pollution at the Light Switch. And in that particular video, I learned that it was six times larger than the BP oil spill. So we are talking about massive coal ash spills. What happens does it eventually dissipate? What happens to these heavy metal toxins? It seems to me that they are quite persistent in the environment. And what are communities left to do other than continue to buy bottled water to basically brush their teeth with and shower and bathe and drink? 
So in the case of the Kingston spill, they dredged the Emory Clinch and Tennessee River to try and remove as much of the coal ash that they spilled into the river as possible. What did they do with it after they dredged it? It went to a dry lined landfill, which is a better alternative than putting it in a wet pond, which liberates the metals. I see. And then they become dissolved in the water. And then they can move much more readily and be transported anytime it rains. Mm -hmm. So dry line landfill is the best we can do. Another alternative is to recycle the coal ash into concrete and brick and things that sequester and solidify the heavy metals. That's another use that's better than putting it in a wet pond where the heavy metals can liberate and then flow across land or in water and it contaminate people downstream mm-hmm. every time it rains. Yeah. So those are some options. Right. Well, we should talk about some propaganda messages that we see. And maybe there is such a thing as clean coal. We hear this all the time. <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> no such thing as clean coal. That's And here's why. Fundamentally, it's a question of geology. When coal is formed in the earth... It forms with heavy metals. It contains, naturally contains mercury, arsenic, cadmium, chromium, all those things. Well, when you burn it, then the carbon burns and you're left over with a concentrated amount of heavy metals and those other ingredients that are naturally in coal. And so then there's the whole carbon issue of heating up the planet and causing climate change. And so Not only does it contaminate with the heavy metals that are concentrated after you burn it, but then there's the whole carbon impact issue, which is a, it's very serious to lower our carbon output to be able to survive as a species. And so there's just no such thing as clean coal. You just, you can't eliminate the carbon, you can't eliminate and get rid of the heavy metals. They go somewhere. Have there been successful lawsuits against energy industries that have polluted regional watersheds and where we know we see higher rates of cancer and birth defects? Have there been, I mean, how do you you put a price on a life or, you know, a child's cancer? It's a little ridiculous, really. But for families that are struggling to receive medical care, for example, after a horrible diagnosis like that, is there any way people can be compensated? So it's very rare for there to be direct compensation. There has been in the cases of massive spills where people's property is has massive amount of coal ash released onto it. There are lawsuits that compel cleanup of the water because there's we have a good uh, clean water law in the United States, and you, you cannot poison other people's water. But lawsuits, and then there's the health care, there's the coal ash workers lawsuit in the Kingston TVA, workers brought suit against the contractor that they worked for because a lot of them developed terrible sicknesses as a result of their work to clean up that spill. They weren't given, they alleged, they weren't given proper protective equipment. Mm. So those are the few rare isolated cases where families have gotten compensation for health issues. The rest of the time, the successful lawsuits have resolved around air and water pollution and a requirement in clean water law that companies cannot just contaminate water. And so those successful suits compel cleanup often of the source of the pollution, which is the ash pond. I see. 
So it seems to me also that in these political times, we are at risk of losing protection of our clean water and clean air policies. What can we do as listeners to make sure that our representatives are protecting our public health? Well, the big thing is just know where they stand on these issues, what their legal conservation voters' score is. Hopefully, their legal conservation voter scorecard for their representative is above 90. If you see that, then that's a good legislator that takes serious environmental health and making sure people have clean air and clean water. Mm-hmm. And then vote. Vote for and select representatives that care about the environment, they take climate change seriously, that want to do something about it, that want to fund, take funding and subsidies away from fossil fuels and shift them clean, green energy. Mm -hmm. All those are great things to do. Now, your business that you have created, River Fox Environmental, do you have a website where you want people to go to learn more about your particular work? Not yet. I haven't built one. I've been too busy with the contracts that I have to build one and just privately doing the work that I'm doing. And so I haven't needed one, actually. So it's a good problem to have. Okay. Well, I want to make sure that we have places to refer people who do have concerns. And I did look at a map. The Earth Justice Organization has a map of the coal ash contamination And I was appalled to see just how many communities in the United States are facing a concern. And I don't know how many people are really aware. It says 737 coal ash units in 43 states and Puerto Rico have reported information in compliance with federal coal ash safeguards since 2015. But then we also find all of the communities in the United States where there has been hazardous leaks into groundwater and, of course, our drinking water then. Yeah, Earth Justice and Environmental Integrity Project, great folks to uh, partner with. Okay. Donna, what do you want our listeners to know about this particular topic and your work? It's important um, to know whether you have one of these leaking coal ash ponds near you. And if you can, get out, get out. If you can't, then organize and work to clean it up. Um, There are resources available on the Earth Justice website, on the Environmental Integrity website that can help you learn more. Okay. Oftentimes I give dietary counseling to pregnant women, and I don't know how many women are aware that I believe it's just about every state in the union has a mercury warning, so a fish warning for pregnant women and children to limit fish meals per week or per month or in some fish not to eat at all. And I think many times we wonder, well, where does all of this mercury contamination come from? And we were talking before our interview about the role of coal burning and how that actually gets into our water. So you've got pollutants in the air that come down with rain and end up in our water. Let's talk just a a few minutes about how fish die, and how our water becomes contaminated by the burning of coal. The first contaminant um, was mercury that was emitted from smokestacks all over the country before modern Clean Air Act required pollution controls on the smokestacks that 
started to dial back the amount of mercury that was being emitted. It's just, again, it's a function of the geology of coal. It has mercury in it naturally. When you burn it, it, mercury is one of the only metals that we have that's liquid at room temperature. So it, it very quickly, when you add heat to it, goes into the air as a vapor. And um, so when it goes out, that big giant smokestack, many, many, many pounds of mercury, and then it falls and settles on the rivers and streams. In the bottom of lakes and deeper rivers, it converts to a toxic form of mercury called methylmercury. Mm-hmm. And there are benthic macroinvertebrates, little critters that live in the bottom of rivers and streams that the small fish eat. And as the small fish eat these benthic macroinvertebrates and then the large fish eat them, the mercury concentrates up the food chain. That's why the top big fish species, swordfish, largemouth bass, and sometimes catfish and pike and these things, they have higher concentrations of mercury because of that bioaccumulation effect up the food chain. And then if a pregnant mother eats that fish, she then gets a dosage of mercury that could have been from a coal plant that burned coal 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first way that coal plants contaminated water and our food. And then as they built coal ash ponds, one of, another one of the metals in coal ash is selenium. It's particularly toxic to fish. And so there have been whole lakes where coal ash water was dumped, that the fish became sterile and all the fish species were destroyed in that lake. Baloo's Lake is a classic example here in North Carolina. Duke Energy's Baloo's Creek power plant discharged coal ash and it killed every almost every species, 17 species of fish in that particular lake as a result of the selenium toxicity. So there's several other places where selenium toxicity from coal has killed fish and deformed fish. It's all throughout the coal mining streams of Appalachia where they traditionally mined Appalachian coal. There's a big selenium problem with the fish. So those are the two primary culprits that really contaminate fish from coal. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'll make sure and provide a link, as I mentioned, to the clean coal water pollution at the light switch, because in that short video, you can see some of the damage to the fish. And again, as we were discussing earlier, these are crimes against humanity. When we lose the ability to play in water, drink clean water, have healthy children, and just be able to go out and fish and eat the food that was you know, that was meant to be there. And I hope that you will continue to do your great work. Do you have a parting message for our audience? I think the parting message is fundamentally a lot of this work is about caring for one another and caring and loving each other enough to want to be healthy, for all people to be healthy, and then making economic choices in the food that you buy, in the places that you live, in the vendors that you support, that support that. So buying organic food, supporting your local farmer and buying food directly from them that you know know is grown in a healthy way, all that is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Making those choices to support health and support health of your neighbor. Yeah, that's a great message for all of us to consider. 
Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Donna Marie Lizenby, president of River Fox Environmental, based in Boone, North Carolina, but working globally on clean energy issues with a lifelong commitment to build sustainable relationships between people and the earth. Donna, thank you so much for your time today and for all of the work you do to protect our water and health. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you for this great radio show. 